Well, good morning, Great Oaks. Uh, how are you guys doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. If we haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Great Oaks, and I'm just so glad you joined us for worship this morning. Um, so I want to start off, and I want to ask this question. Have any of you had one of these seasons? You know, a season where of life where God was calling you into something amazing, that he was speaking some truth into your life, maybe a, a purpose for your life that was bigger than you could ever imagine. And then as you walk into God's will for your life, you hit obstacle after obstacle. The fall of 2014 was like that for my family and I. We were in the process of planting a church campus in the Sunnyland area of Washington. We were living at the time in Peoria, and we were just getting ready to move into Washington. And then September 1st hits. My, um, my sister calls me, and she says, uh, my dad has been diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. At the same time, my daughter had just eaten a plum and uh, had an allergic reaction to it. And so I'm getting this devastating news from my sister, and my daughter's face is blown up to three times its normal size, and my wife is trying to take her to the emergency room. Elizabeth told me earlier today it wasn't really three times the size, but her, her lips were huge. Anyway, so we ended up taking her to the emergency room. Six weeks later, my dad passed away. It was a very aggressive form of cancer, and so he went quick. We had traveled back from Wisconsin after his death and were uh, going to travel back to Wisconsin about a week later for the funeral. And I was laying in bed one morning and all of a sudden Stephanie, my wife, saw a bug crawl across me. Now, backstory a little bit. Uh, a few months earlier, we had taken a family trip to Disney, uh, which was a great time. Um, we also had taken into our home a single mom who um, was going through some hard things with a domestic situation. We had brought her in from the south side of Chicago. And I mentioned those two stories because to this day, we're not sure if we brought bed bugs home from Disney or if she brought bed bugs with her when she came from Chicago. I can tell you to this day that bed bugs are evil. They are horrendous. If you've ever had them, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never had them, praise God because they're horrendous. I believe that bed bugs were not here when God created the world. I believe they're a result of the fall of man. <laughs> but to this day, I am grateful for the bed bugs. Let me tell you why. As you get bed bugs, if you know if you've had them, it takes a long time to treat for them. It's not just a one-time occurrence. They come back to your house over and over and over again. We hired an exterminating company, but in our family, we joke, we didn't hire an exterminating company. We hired Bob. We got Bob. So Bob was our exterminator, and he would come back week after week to make sure these little buggers went away. Well, after time, we got to know Bob. We got to hear a little bit about him. We got to develop a relationship with Bob. One time he was over at the apartment before we moved to Washington and he looked at us and he said, hey, why are you moving? Because actually you probably shouldn't move when you had bugs, but we had to anyway. And so he said, why are you moving? And said, well, we're going to plant a church campus. And he's like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Where are you moving to? And we said, well, we're moving to the Sunnyland area of Washington. And he got really quiet. He said, we live in Sunnyland and we're looking for a church. My family and I were going through some things right now, and, and we could really use some hope and some, some help. So a few months go by, and we got to know Bob and his family. Eventually, Bob would become part of our church family. He would become on our setup and teardown crew, and he would set up and tear down as we met in a gym, a school gym, every single week. And because of Bob and others like them, a church was established in the Sunnyland area of Washington. Through that church, people met Jesus for the first time. People received, received healing from all kinds of emotional wounds and things. God did an amazing thing because of Bob and people like him. So looking back, I look at that season, and I'll tell you to this day that bed bugs are horrendous. 
but I can tell you how I could see how God used them for the saving of many lives. I started off with that story this morning because it reminds me of one of my favorite stories and one of my favorite biblical characters, a guy by the name of Joseph. And if you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard of Joseph, you've known his story, if you've been in Sunday school, kids' town, things of that nature, you've probably heard of Joseph. If you don't know the Bible very well, that's fine. We're glad that you're here. Uh, If you're a fan of Broadway musicals, uh, his story is told in the amazing musical Joseph, the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, starring, uh, I don't know if we have the slide up for that. Is there a slide for that one? Yeah, there he is. Donny Osmond, right? Uh, Played Joseph in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. his, that musical is based very strongly on the biblical story. In the Bible, it's found in Genesis chapters, uh, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And it's found in Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis 50. That's where you can read about Joseph. For our purposes this morning, I want to focus in on the end of Joseph's life. And specifically in chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up this morning. If you got on the YouVersion Bible app, I think it's on there as well. So Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. And here's what it says. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and he wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Now I want you to look in at verse 20 for a moment. Joseph is speaking to his brothers here and he says to them, You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. Joseph is saying, I know what you did. I know the difficult life that I had. But listen, the harm that you intended for my life, God intended it all for good. Now, if you're not familiar with Joseph's story, you might be a little bit confused. So let me just back the train up here a little bit and just quickly gave you an overview of Joseph's life. So, like I said, Joseph's life story starts in Genesis 37. And in Genesis chapter 37, God gives Joseph a dream. Not as a dream like I have a plan and will for your life, but a dream like the kind of laying down in your bed kind of dream. And the dream that God gave Joseph was that one day Joseph was going to rule over his family. Namely, he was going to rule over his brothers. At some time, they were going to bow down before him. See, God had amazing, huge plans for Joseph's life. God spoke into Joseph's life with these dreams. And yet for Joseph, life gets hard. And it gets hard for two reasons. First, life gets hard for Joseph because of what others do to him. Life gets hard because of what others do to us. His brothers don't like him very much because he is his father's favorite. In fact, his father, Jacob, gives him this really fancy robe, the Technicolor dream coat, right? And then Joseph gets this dream. And Joseph goes to his brothers and he tells them this dream. And so they don't like it very much, so they plot to kill him. One of the brothers thinks, you know, this is probably not a good idea to kill him. Murder is not a good idea. So instead, they throw him in a cistern. 
and then they eventually sell him into slavery. So Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt, and he's serving a guy named Potiphar. And he's, while he's serving at Potiphar's house, it's actually going fairly well, but then one day Potiphar's wife looks at the handsome young Joseph and says, hey, I think I want him. And so she makes a pass at him. Joseph's like, no, I love God. I'm not going to do that. She gets mad. She accuses Joseph of assaulting her, tells Potiphar. Potiphar gets angry and throws Joseph in prison. Now, it's kind of a high-end prison, kind of like a white-collar crime kind of place, right? And so in that prison are two of Pharaoh's servants, a guy by the name of the baker and a guy by the name of the chief cupbearer. And they're in prison with Joseph, and they one night have a dream. Now, Joseph not only has the gift of getting dreams from God, he can also interpret dreams. And so they tell Joseph their dreams. And Joseph says, oh, here's what your dreams mean. Baker, sorry, dude, it's really bad for you, but you're going to go back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to kill you dead. Sorry about that. Cupbearer, good news for you. You're going to go back into Pharaoh's kingdom. You're going to go back at his right-hand side as the cupbearer. It's awesome. But hey, can you do me a favor? When you get before Pharaoh, can you remember, remember me and get me out of this place? Because I don't want to be in prison anymore. Cupbearer's like, yeah, I gotcha. Not a problem. Except that he forgets about him. For two years, Joseph sits in that prison. And then one day, Pharaoh gets a dream. And Pharaoh's like, I don't know what this dream means. And Cupbearer's like, oh, man, I remember this guy. Light bulb goes off. There's this guy, Joseph, in prison. He can tell you what it means. And so they get Joseph out of prison. They take him into Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh tells uh, Joseph his dream. And the dream is basically this. There's going to be seven years in Egypt of great plenty, where there's going to be more than enough food to feed everybody. But that's going to be followed by seven years of famine, where people are going to starve to death. And Joseph looks at Pharaoh and he says, listen, here's the plan. Get someone in charge who's going to store up stuff in the good years so that we can feed people in the lean years. Pharaoh's like, hey, that sounds like a good idea. You're full of wisdom. You're second in command in all of Egypt right now. I'm putting you in charge of this whole program. Store up stuff in the good years so we can feed people in the years of famine. Now, Joseph's family is still back in the land, this land called Canaan. And this famine is so bad when it gets to the seven years that they're starving. Joseph's dad, Jacob, is remembering that, uh, or hears that there's food in Egypt. And so he sends his sons, Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to go get some food. They travel to Egypt. They get there. They meet Joseph. They don't remember that it's him or they don't recognize that it's Joseph. Joseph, of course, remembers his brothers. He gives them some food, sends them back to Canaan. A few years pass. There's some back and forth with some brothers and all this kind of mess. Eventually, the brothers go back to Egypt. And when they go back to Egypt, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. Now, they end up reuniting with Jacob, the father. Father comes back down to Egypt. They all live happily ever after. That's Joseph's story, which gets us to our chapter that we read this morning. Jacob, Joseph's dad, is now dead, and his brothers are shaking in their boots because now Joseph is going to get his revenge. It's time to Joseph, for Joseph to pay back what his brothers have done to him. The reality is that in Joseph's life, there has been heartache. In Joseph's life, there has been hardship. There's things that people have done to him that have not been good. He's been sold into slavery. He's been left for dead. He's been falsely accused. He's been thrown into prison. He's been hated and abandoned. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've experienced some of this kind of things. Maybe you haven't been left dead in a cistern, but you've known pain and anguish at the hands of others. Like Joseph, maybe it was your own family the people that were supposed to love you and care for you and protect you, the people that were supposed to love you, treated you cruelly. Maybe it was the hands of an employer, somebody who betrayed you, or hands of a friend who abandoned you at your time of greatest need. 
Life sometimes gets hard because of what others do to us. If I can be real with you for a moment, before I got to Great Oaks, this was part of my journey. There was someone who had treated me very poorly, I felt, that had really hurt me and wounded me, so much so that I began to doubt my calling, doubt that God could use me for any good, started even to doubt my, even my identity in Christ. I felt a great deal of shame that I would never be good enough because of what this person did. Life is often hard because of what others do to us. Or maybe life is hard because of what we do to ourselves. You know, one of the things about Joseph that I find interesting is that a lot of his issues were because of what others did to him, right? But Joseph also really didn't know how to keep his mouth shut. And I wonder if the trajectory of his life would be so much different if Genesis 37, 5 through 6 did not happen. In that passage we read, one night Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to the dream, he said. So, so Joseph goes and he tells his brothers that, hey, one day, you know, God came to me, gave me a dream, and one day you're going to bow down before me. I'm going to rule over you. Now, in the end, this is a true dream, right? He's, he's not lying. I mean, in Genesis 50, what we read, that's what happens, right? At the end of his life, his brothers are bowing down before him. But man, there's a little bit of youthful arrogance that's happening here for Joseph, isn't it? I mean, I mean imagine this. How, how many of you in the room have a younger sibling? Show of hands, some of you, okay. Imagine your younger sibling comes to you one day and says, hey, guess what? God gave me a dream. And one day, you're going to bow down before me. I'm going to rule over your life. Now, if you're like me, I have a younger sister. If my sister came to me and told me that, I said, get the heck out of here. I'm done with you. You're crazy, right? That's how we would react. Joseph's brother's reaction is not all that uncommon or abnormal, right? I mean, Joseph kind of brings some of this upon himself, because of the choices he made. And I wonder for sometimes in our lives if the obstacles, the heartache that we experience is because sometimes we're our own worst enemy, right? Sometimes we do things um, that, um, that lead to the, the hardness of our life. Maybe it's mistakes that we've made, sins that we've committed, addictions that we can't break, relationships that we have messed up and ruined. The truth is, sometimes we are our worst enemy. Sometimes we are the ones that make mistakes that lead to life being hard. But either way, God is still calling. God is still moving and working. There's still something God is calling us to, and yet obstacle and heartache happens. So when that heartache happens, when the hard happens, how do we respond? What do we do when life gives you lemons, right? How do we respond? Well, we respond with God-like love. We respond with God-like love, and that's what Joseph does in our story, doesn't he? I mean, Joseph is standing before his brothers, the very people who hated him, who sold him into slavery. And what does he say? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Joseph, at the end of his life, he's able to look back and kind of see things through God's eyes. He sees how God has been moving and working and now seeing his family who sold him into slavery, who hated him, were jealous of him, wanted him dead at one point, he's able to love them. He's able to forgive them. It says that he said, I'm going to continue to take care of you. He reassures them by speaking kindly to them. Joseph was able to see that even though life was really, really hard, 
If it had not been for the hard, he would not have been used by God to save the lives of people that would have starved to death. Joseph was able to see that all the things that happened, all the events of his life, the good and the bad, God had folded into a beautiful tapestry, had put them together so that one day God would put Joseph in a place where he could save so many lives, where he could store up that food and make sure that people didn't starve to death. And because of this, God, Joseph was able to extend love and kindness to people who had harmed him, people who had hurt him. And this, I think, reflects well the mission in the heart here that we have at Great Oaks. As we work to help people take their next steps towards Jesus, this is the type of love and compassion, the God-like love that we want to be extending to others because it really reflects the heart of who God is. I mean, this is who God is, isn't it? I mean, think about this. How many times in our lives have we turned our back on God? Have we looked at God and said, God, I'm going to do it my own way. I want, to, I want to go my own path. How many times has God commanded us to do something and yet we sin against and we do the opposite, which is basically like spitting God in the face. And yet God meets us with love and with kindness and with grace. And when we're at our worst, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that we could be in relationship with him. This is the love of God. And this is how Joseph responds to those that have treated him so poorly. But let's be real. This is easier said than done, isn't it? When people have been hard to us, when they've hurt us, when they've been mean to us, right? This is the last thing we want to do is extend love and grace to people who need it. Rather, we'd like to get back at them, right? We want to, we want to seek, our, seek vengeance. We want them to hurt. We want them to feel pain. You know, it reminds me of a conversation my wife Stephanie and I were having um, a few weeks ago. We were talking about a friend who had posted some stuff on Facebook. She was responding to a bunch of stuff uh, that's happening in the world and in the nation. And obviously, there's been lots of vitriol out there. You guys all know that. And she was commenting on some things happening, and she was just blasting others. And there was no sign of love, no sign of grace, no sign of kindness coming out while she was posting. And she's a follower of Jesus. And I looked at Stephanie and I said, what, what happened to this person? And Stephanie said something really profound. She said, they let their pain drive their theology rather than letting their theology drive their pain. They let their pain drive their theology rather than letting their theology drive their pain. If you're not familiar with the word theology, it basically just means what they think about God. They let the pain that they experienced in life even pain that had happened from other Christians, had happened in the church, dictate and illustrate how they were thought about God, how they thought about the church, how they thought about other people. And out of that just came lots of anger, lots of hurt, lots of pain. Not, not Christ-like love, not God-like love. They let their pain drive their theology rather than letting their theology drive their pain. And I think what Joseph does well is he does the opposite, right? He lets, he lets his theology drive his pain. He lets his understanding about who God is and his relationship with God dictate how he responds to the things that happen in life rather than vice versa. But like I said, it's still really hard, right? It's easier to say, oh, just don't do that. Don't let your pain drive your theology. That's easy to say, but it's hard to live out. So with our remaining time, let me just give you three things I think that Joseph does well that allows him to not let his pain drive his theology, but his theology drive his pain. So three action steps that I think that we can take that we can also respond then in God-like love. Here's the three. 
First, I think one of the things that Joseph does well that we can learn well is that we need to learn to stay in our lane. We need to learn to stay in our lane. In Genesis 50, verse 19, it says, But Joseph replied, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You know, one of the amazing things about Joseph is that Joseph knows his place. He knows what his lane is, and he stays in his lane. He knew what God's purpose was. He knew what God's um, plan, uh, job was, and he knew what his job was. He knew who God was and that he was not him. He knew that it, it was God's role to judge. It was God's role to punish. That's God's job. In Romans twelve nineteen, it states, Dear friends, never take revenge. Not sometimes don't take revenge. It says, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Tim Keller, in speaking about Genesis 50, stated, Joseph does well to not take God's chair. What he means is that God alone gets to sit on the throne. God alone is the one who gets to sit on that judgment seat. And you know what? Joseph is humble enough, at least at this point of his life, to recognize that he is not God. Joseph knows that his job is to serve God. His job is to be a vessel, to be used by God, to show the love of God to people who need it, to the saving of many people. That's Joseph's job. God's job is to judge. God's job was to punish sin. You know, Great Oaks, I don't know if you know this, but one day each and every single one of us is going to stand before a holy God. One day each of us is going to sit before the judgment seat of God. And we're going to have to give an account of our lives, the good and the bad. Now, the amazing gift we get in Jesus Christ is that we stand before that Holy Father. We, God doesn't see us and all the things we've messed up. He sees Jesus and we're forgiven. But God is still sitting on that throne. He's still that holy God who gets to judge sin and gets to punish the wrongdoing. That's God's job, not ours. You know, back to my story about feeling hurt and beat up. There's lots of times where when I think about that situation where I want to get revenge, where I want them to hurt where I want them to feel the pain that I feel, where I want them to fail, where I want them to feel misery, where I don't want them to succeed. And then I have to do the hard work of remembering that I need to stay in my lane, that that's not my job. That's not my job to judge them. That's my not, jo my, not my job to punish them. My job is to love. My job is to forgive. My job is to extend grace and kindness. That's my job. We'll let God deal with that. And so there's moments where I just have to, when I'm feeling that vengeful way and I want them to feel hurt, I, God, I'm just going to give that to you. God, i got to give that to you. That's your job, not my job. Joseph does well to stay in his lane. And when life is hard, we've got to learn to stay in our lane as well. Make sure God sits on his chair, not us on his. That's the first thing. Second thing I think that Joseph does well that we can learn from as well is that we can know that God is with us. You can know that God is with you. In Genesis 39, 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. See, one of the things I think that enabled Joseph to respond as he did was that, that, always, that he always knew that the Lord was with him. He always knew that the Lord was with him. When he was in prison, the Lord was there. In Potiphar's house, the Lord was there. In the cistern, he was there. In Egypt, he was there. Joseph knew that in the trials of life, that God was right there with him every step of the way. You know, I've often noticed in my life when things are the hardest, that the Lord has felt the most present, when he's felt the closest, 
The psalmist backs this up in 34, uh, Psalm 34, verse 17 through 18. He says, The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. I can tell you in the darkest of times that the Lord is close. He's there walking with you, comforting you, healing the brokenhearted. Now, you might be thinking this morning, Paul, I think that's a bunch of garbage. Because there's been times in my life where I've been through a hard time and I felt like God has abandoned me, that I felt alone, that he hasn't been close. If I can hit you with a little bit of truth this morning, you know, one of the amazing things about being a follower of Jesus is that we get this really amazing gift. We get the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the very presence of God in our lives. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was at these specific times and places. In the New Testament, because of what Jesus has done, we get the Holy Spirit all the time. And I know it's hard, but a promise of God, when you have a relationship with Jesus, the presence of God comes. Listen, church, you and I are never alone. You and I are never alone. I mean, think about that for a moment. When you're going through a hard time, a tough time, The God of the universe, who still sits on his throne, is there walking with you. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is there with you. And I want you to think about the confidence, the courage that comes when the God of the universe, the God who spoke and created the world, is there on your side. The psalmist also says, with God on my side, what can mortal man do to me? The answer to that question is absolutely nothing. You've got the God of the universe right there with you walking with you, sustaining you, comforting you in those hard times. When life is hard, we can be assured that God is with us. Joseph knew this to the core of his being. He knew God's love and care for him. And out of that confidence that comes with God, he was able to let the, uh, not let the pain drive his theology, but the theology drive his pain. And out of that, he could respond with God-like love. So know that God is with you. Here's the third one. The third one is this hold to the promise. In Genesis 50, verse 24, there's this really interesting reference that Joseph makes when he's about to die. And it's actually a reference that is all over Joseph's story. And in verse, uh, verse 24, it says, Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers. But God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he'd solemnly promised to give to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac, and to jo- Jacob. Joseph mentions the land promised to his forefathers and to his dad, Jacob. It's the promised land. It's the land that's filled with milk and honey. It's a place of of peace and rest. It's the promised land. It's talked about all over the Old Testament. And I think the importance of this part of the story is you understand the importance by understanding the background of the story. Namely, who wrote Genesis and to whom it was written? The answer to the first question is that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. We also know from the book of Exodus that Moses never makes it into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Therefore, it means that it was written to the Israelites when they're wandering in a desert. It's written to a people who are undergoing a fair amount of hardship. They're existing in a place of great suffering. They're they're eating the same meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 years. And the story of Joseph is a reminder to them that you can trust the promises of God. God had promised Joseph at the beginning of his life, hey, one day you're going to rule over your family. That was a promise of God. And as the Israelites are hearing this story and reminded of the story as they're wandering a desert, they're remembering, hey, we can trust and remember the promises of God. That God's promises come true. 
It's a message of hope. It's a message of trust that comes when people are going through a hard time. It might look hopeless. In the midst of what we're going through right now, it might look hopeless, but God is moving and working. There will come a time where you're going to be back in this promised land. You can trust me. It might not look like it right now, but my promises are good. Joseph was not driven by his pain because he was holding fast to the promises of God, trusting that no matter what was happening, God was still in control. No matter what life was throwing his way, God was still in control. I can hold fast to the promises of God. And you know, it reminds me of another time in in the Bible where things look bleak. When the people of God were experiencing great oppression, when things were hard, when life was hard, and people were wondering, God, what are you up to? And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. There's a promise of Jesus. In this world we will have heartache. In this world, bad things are going to happen. But what does Jesus say? He says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. I know things are hard right now, but a coming a day when you will not feel this anymore. And I think about the disciples who gathered around with Jesus during that last meal that they hung out with him before he goes to the cross. And I think about his friends who watched him hung and beaten on a tree, or beaten and hung on a tree. And I wonder about the pain that they endured as they watched that giant stone roll in front of the tomb. And yet I think about Peter's words to the religious leaders as the Holy Spirit inspired him. He says this, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and you killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep its grip. Peter says, what you did to harm him, God intended for good, the saving of many lives. Great Oaks, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what life has thrown your way. But God's promises are good. There will come a time where the things you're going through right now will no longer be. There will come a time when God will move, where God will work, where something better is happening. I don't know, like, if the cancer you're going through right now is a story of God's healing, where you get to give hope to someone else going through it later on. I don't know that if the struggles you're facing in your marriage right now are just an opportunity for God to do something amazing and beautiful, and you get to help someone down the road later on. The hardships that you're doing, going through right now are God's way of just putting things together. He's painting a beautiful story of hope and redemption to people who need it. What man is intended for evil, God can use for good, for the saving of many lives. Don't let your pain drive your theology. Let your theology drive your pain and respond with God-like love. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, God, for your word and how you speak and how you encourage, and how you help us, Lord, when life is hard. When others have done things to us that have caused us great, great pain, or we've done things to ourselves, God, we, we, we thank you, God, that you, what, what man is intended for evil, God, you can use for good to bring hope and healing to people who need it. And God, I'm reminded of your words that are spoken in the book of Revelation. 
In this world, we know that there will be trouble. There will be difficulty. Life will be hard. And yet, God, you promised that one day there will become a day where the hard will go away. Where you will dwell among us and you will wipe every tear away from every eye. And there will no longer be any death or any mourning or crying or pain as this world passes away and we get to be with you forever. God, help us to hold fast to those promises. When life is hard, and help us to remember the greatest promise of all, that when the world was falling away and falling apart, you loved us enough to send your son Jesus, your promises are true, that you ordained for him to be beaten on a cross, beaten and put on a cross and die, to rise again so that we could experience life. God, we love you so much. And we're grateful for this morning. Have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.